0: Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ryan right here, as always, alongside the ball spin himself, Mark Rosano. Mark said, "Listen, I've got to get on to, just to tell you what's going on about the Ukraine, Ryan, or I'm going to fire you." So, Mark, it's it's thank you for coming on. I suppose. Uh, thank you for not firing me today. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting, of course, people. I'm getting, of course. Mark doesn't threaten me verbally. He just looked at me really mean and hollered. <laughs>
1: How's it going, buddy? Good. Well, it's a, uh, thank you for having me on. I know we had to move it for uh, for obvious reasons. There's a lot of uh, things happening in the world today, so I figured it'd be good to touch base and, and, uh, and see where we are. Absolutely. So let's maybe update real quick last um,
0: month's talk. We talked about uh, C6, what's going on. So maybe a quick update on where we're at with that for the folks who might be interested uh, sure. in C6 stuff.
1: Sure. So we are, uh, we closed on our uh, officially on our first three dams. So they're in the portfolio. Uh, They are producing and and acting better than we could have ever expected. Uh, Natural gas prices being where they are obviously helping just because the uh, new England prices, electricity off of gas. Uh, We be through that process. We've been approached on uh, picking up some additional assets at very favorable prices. So we're in the process of doing the due diligence, doing all the work that we, that needs to be done. And then we're also rounding out our first investment on a fertilizer side, which comes at obviously a very interesting time in the world today, given where fertilizer prices are, where grain prices are going, and just the underlying shortages that remain in the system uh, with the loss of uh, both Ukrainian and Russian exports into the global market.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. It's it's, it's interesting because... um you look at where power prices are it's it's and we're 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 talking about this some more it's it's hard to see them leveling off i mean it's hard to see um or at least in the you know if they do okay if they do level off they're not going to go back down to like a 2019
1: level right well and that's that's the biggest the biggest component when we look at electricity so one of the things when we started modeling these uh you know what some of the returns would be we looked at 2020 uh, just picking a recession year and some other recession years and some of them you can't really use just because pricing metrics have changed. you know uh, there's been some broader shortfalls on the base load capacity side. But when you look at just how different areas price out their electricity, New England is uh, is priced off of natural gas. Uh, large parts of the Midwest are priced off of coal. So when you just look at where some of these dynamics are, you know, natural gas prices currently hub is at uh, just is over four dollars and fifty six cents. You know, you have uh, coal that is at levels that we haven't seen in 10 plus years in terms of pricing. So and then you look at abroad and you look at the loss of uh, of Russian natural gas into the market. What does that do for LNG? What does that do for exports? You know, we're already starting to see. Europe entered negotiations with uh, JERA out of Japan to see if they can get additional cargos post March, uh, and and again, just it, it's a good time when you look at the spring, you know, trying to maybe buy more than you were uh, that you would normally would just to try to build some uh, uh, some reserves, some storage ahead of uh, summer. So again, all of these things are just going to keep commodities in a fairly tight spot. And you're just going to continue to see these pressure points as sanctions increase in Russia, letters of credit uh, become unavailable or just banks don't want the risk. Even if there aren't official sanctions, you're going to see the financial network uh, working against them just in terms of fear of uh, sanctions and, and what that could mean, which is just going to limit the credit availability.
0: So I made it quite clear. I didn't think Putin was going to invade. I thought he was going to stay on his side of the border. I obviously was wrong. Um, why was I wrong? Okay, I know I know I was wrong because he did what I said he wasn't going to do. I get that I was wrong because of that,
1: but what made him go across the border, you think? So I laid out two paths back in, in on December 9th. And, and one of those paths was what is currently happening. I, but to be clear, I gave what is currently happening right now about a 20% chance of probability. And the reason why I gave, I gave it that level of probability is you know, similar to yourself when you're looking at what Putin does. It is brinkmanship, it's espionage, it's subterfuge. It's, it's a little bit different than what is currently going on. And then, you know, you look at Georgia going into a civil war, you know, look at Syria going into a civil war. And and you could say that there was some sort of civil war that had occurred in, in Ukraine when you look at Crimea, the LNR, the DNR. But the difference was the, uh, the remaining pieces of Ukraine were very united. So some of the pieces that we were looking at was, you know, Ukraine was a very different country between 2014 and 2022. A different government, a lot of training that has gone uh, between those periods of time, a lot of increase in uh, in more advanced weaponry. You know, it was just it was a different setup versus where things were in 2014. So when you look at what are some of the pieces, you have to look at what does Ukraine represent? And so when you look at the other side, which was what I had laid out, you have to go back to even before he, uh, Putin was president and when he was head of the KGB and was a bit more of a prominent figure. I should say became a prominent figure, and he was very adamant about how much he disliked and hated the US, the old USSR satellite com, uh, countries, how he blamed them for the failures of, uh, of of Russia. And when you look at the independence, you know, the Ukraine was was a huge uh, juggernaut for the Russian and really the USSR economy. When you look at where manufacturing occurred, where assemblies occurred. You know, so there was a huge amount of importance of Ukraine staying in Russia, and when they officially uh, filed for indep- uh, voted for independence, that became a slap in the face. And right after that is when you saw the Russian economy really take a nosedive. So if you wanted to pin or you know pin one of these countries as you know the linchpin for the collapse. He picked Ukraine and obviously there's Poland on the other side, but he really focused on Ukraine and there was always that anger. So then when you look at where the Ukraine sits, you know, he's always been concerned about the NATO expansion uh, east. And and I and I'm not saying that that's an excuse for what he did, but this is something that has been a consistent uh, pressure point. And when you look at when we brought in additional countries into NATO, he went into Georgia. So there's a certain amount of kind of tit for tat uh, components. And as we started to move some more advanced uh, weaponry to the east, this is when you started to see him build up. Now, there were multiple things that he was also trying to address. We were, and and by we, I mean, NATO and and other nations were questioning his ability to to muster his ability to to, to really create an invasion force or a force that could meet an invading uh, army. And I thought he was doing this to show, look what I can do. I can still do it. You know, even though some of the things are a bit older, we can we we still have the logistics. But he doesn't have the logistics, and, and we're seeing that now in in the, in a full on invasion with with um, uh, columns running out of out of fuel. You know, people looking to desert just because they don't have the same type of uh, uh, muster, if you will, or or the same type of hatred towards Ukraine. And that's when you start to look at some of these shifts you know as i was saying during the ussr a lot of individuals went to go work in the ukraine and you had a fairly large migration from russia into the ukraine so when you look at how russia has treated the Chechnyans, uh, the syrians in terms of some of these you know more vicious attacks and civilian attacks they don't look at them the same way and 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 i'm not you know i'm again broad strokes in terms of commentary but the Ukrainians are, are relatives, like a lot of these Russians studied in Ukrainian schools, they, they visited, they would vacation in Ukraine, they have cousins, aunts, uncles, you know, family members that are there. And this is, this is very different, which is why when you look at, you know, based on the commentary, and to be very clear, Ukraine has launched a fantastic uh, psycholo- uh, psychological warf- warfare, they've, been, they've, they've controlled the narrative, they controlled the airwaves, it's been fantastic for them. But, you know, it doesn't take much to to find the other side and look at, you know, the advances in the south where things are coming You know, when you're looking east to west. But there's a certain amount of desert desertion that is true. And it's and it's because of this friendship, this kinship that is there where you're not you're not you know killing someone that you don't really know and you don't really care one way or the other. Th- this is blood. This is this is a certain amount of uh, closeness, which is, I think, I think something else that uh, Putin has has undermined. Now, when you look at the position he's put himself in, it's become more of a lose lose situation. Because when you look at Ukraine, you know the Ukrainians have thrown out two Russian uh, puppet governments, if you will. They've become more emboldened because of it. They've become more united. So if Putin thinks he can go in, you know, take out the government and force an unconditional surrender of the mili- of the military uh, leadership. People aren't going to fall online like th- this is going to become guerrilla ca- uh, tactics. This is going to become a, something more aggressive. And he's going to get bogged down there because this isn't Mosul. This isn't something that has, you know, five story buildings. These are buildings that have 30, 35, 40 stories. And think about for anybody who's watching this, who is a military individual I mean, it's almost five attackers to one defender. I mean, you have to go through each unit to clean to clear it out, and then you have to leave half the people behind to make sure that they don't backfill and go in and use it as a defense post. So you're looking at a, a very strategic thing from the Ukrainian perspective where tactical retreats uh, retreats go out you know, uh, put a stand, retreat, you know, fall back to urban warfare, try to take out some of the um, the more advanced equipment and the artillery and draw them in. And that becomes a, a long dra- uh, drawn out war, which is something that, again, Putin can't can't tolerate. Then from the other side, if he if he orders a full on retreat, well, he just proved what others had said, where he wasn't going to be able to to uh, to to launch this kind of attack. So, again, there's you're pinning he's pinned himself into a a a corner and then you look at the the economic sanctions you look at the oligarchs losing a significant amount of their value and that's where you start to see some of these pieces of well can he maintain support internally and, and yes he's a dictator yes he has a certain amount of absolute power but you know dictators become paranoid for a reason and and his paranoia has really worked against him because he has surrounded himself with yes men he is he has stripped away a lot of the strategists that he's had in the past and he's shrunk in his his his, his um his network and in his inner circle and i think that's what you're seeing in terms of the failures in what is happening between Russia and Ukraine. And, and to be clear, they're still making progress. I'm not saying that the Ukraine has put up this, this, this insane stand and they are stopping the progress, but Ukraine is also giving up distance for time. And there's also tact, uh, tactical moves in that that have to be appreciated because each one is using a, a strategy. And so far, the Ukrainian strategy has been very effective against the invading force that outnumbered it by a, a large margin. Yeah, and you see, so you covered a lot of ground there. I think
0: the the question that I have in my mind is: let's just say, if this continues to drag on, um, and I think we should just put a disclaimer because I don't keep saying this. We're just talking, we're analyzing, folks. We're not justifying. Okay, so this is not a justification. We're just trying to, dis- to discuss this, so it's not like mm-hmm. pro this that. But if this decides, to, if this, this does drag on, the Ukrainians are able to string this out longer and longer. My my concern is that, the, to your point, that, that could push Putin further over the edge, right? Because let's, you know, let's be honest that from, okay, from my perspective, for, for the past, you know, 30 years, we've heard about big, bad Russia, and now they go on to invade Ukraine, and they are struggling. They are struggling. Mm-hmm. This is not big, bad Russia. What makes big, bad Russia big, bad Russia today is one thing, nuclear arms, right? That's what makes them big, bad Russia. It's quite apparent that, they're, that their military... Uh, especially the ground forces are not. There's no, they're, they're not, nothing to write home about, and this isn't a slap in the face of the Ukrainians or none of that stuff. It's just, it's just simple logic. And so, how much more can Putin endure before we should be concerned that he does push it a little bit farther? Because that's really my concern right now. Is that you know you don't want bloodshed to happen, but then you go, well, what happens if this trajectory continues? Um, right. Because Putin's let's be honest, Putin's embarrassed right now. He has to be.
1: Well, I, the thing when you look at the launch of nuclear missiles and, and the, you know, there's protocol in place and and it's not something where Putin goes under his desk, hits a button and instantly nuclear missiles are launched. Sure. You know, there is there's, there's a certain amount of fail safes that that insulate that. And there's people that sit between it. And again, there's going to be a lot of what ifs and what I'm about to say and, and a lot of questions in terms of where it is. But you have to assume that people are going to follow orders. And when you look even going back to the the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, there were Russian military individuals at the time that disobeyed orders that that really helped stave off what could have been an epic disaster when you look at the Cuban Missile Crisis. And when you look at where things are, you know, even though you may support someone even in in this stance, stance where you support someone, there is a point where it's this is a step too far and if you think about the launch of nuclear missiles and then what the response of a nuclear launch would be, that becomes a very a big a much bigger unknown, which is why you're starting to see a fairly sizable increase in people pressing for the end within Russia, because to be clear, you cannot protest in Russia. The moment you show up to protest, it's not, okay. let them get it out. It's no, you're arrested. It is illegal to protest. So the fact that you're seeing people starting to ramp up, it's because they also know this and they don't want to be in the middle of this because they didn't ask for any of this. And I think based on some of that, you'd have to Look at what would be launched and how would it be launched? You know, could he use a local tactical nuke when you think of something a bit smaller, you know, launched within the Ukraine itself? The the short answer is yes, but the cross-contamination of him and, and you know the Ukrainians and the soldiers. And his soldiers would be you know, massive. But as we as we know, he doesn't really care all that much for, for his soldiers based on what we've seen at the at the lowest level, you know, in terms of this, con, the conscripted and the um, and the officers. So my thing is, and that's a long way of saying I, I'm not really confident that people would carry out the order if it was given and and no matter how crazy someone may become, you, know, you you like to hope that there's a certain amount of sensibility that lives within it because you're talking about something that would have a massive domino effect. And yes, we have we have mitigating factors, we have fad, we have other forms of of um, of counter defense that we both know of uh, as as the general public and don't know of in terms of things that are probably been deployed that we that are classified. You know, and you hope that they would be effective but at the same time, as we all know, the the, the the nuclear system is meant where you overwhelm the defenses. So if you launch if you launch fifty and you can only shoot down thirty five, yeah, you shot down thirty five, but that's how many are gonna, are still going to hit home. So I, I think that there's a lot of what ifs in that, and and I'm not confident and again uh, this is uh, you know my, uh, also a certain amount of wishful thinking that somebody and the military wouldn't carry out um, that kind of order
0: well no I think you have to you have to include that as a possibility because you know if you are, the top general, and I don't know the Russian nuclear football chain of codes commands here, but right. I agree. It's not just, it's not just Putin goes under the desk, like a bank robber comes into a right. bank and you, you press the button and the cop, you know, so there's, there's protocols in place. And, um, you know, you, you have to stop and think about to your point, who is in that line. I don't, I don't know how many people it is two, five, five, 10, 20, whatever it is. Um, and, and the, and them realizing that they are essentially committing suicide. Like this is it. Because yeah. once the first one goes off, um, there's no we don't know where it ends. And it could be their wife, their kids, their, their parents, their loved ones. And so um that does carry probably more weight than people uh, tend to consider. Um but because we don't know, you don't know. So it could be that they're all no. <laughs> goose stepping Russians that just fall in line and they don't they don't ask <laughs> questions. And so you you have to you have to worry about that. And listen, I'm not a I'm not a warmonger, so I don't think it's gonna come to that either. But I do think that it's kind of been lost in the narrative here some, uh, at least in the West, that, hey, um, you know, the longer it goes bad for Putin, the potential for that is more likely than if he were to come in and swiftly overtake it. And not that that's a good outcome either. There's no good outcomes here um, because I don't know how Putin can survive internally if he can't without some kind of w in the in ukraine and that and that is that that makes it really complicated because how does he project power when when what's perceived to be a weaker nation he can't take it down and that it's just it's a bad look and that's when i'll well, talk about china in a second that's part of the thing that i think gets left out of the taiwan narrative is that if xi jinping goes after taiwan and he fails he's done it's over they talk about this for years, and if you can't take Taiwan, uh, then you're in trouble. So I think that that has to, that, that's a problem we have here to deal with.
1: Well, and and you, as you talk, you know I guess it's the klepto uh, uh, democracy in terms of where it is. there's just, there's a lot of the oligarchs, but the oligarchs still have a lot of power and and they still have a lot of people that would follow their marching orders. And when you look at at how this has galvanized the West, and you know, if you had told me two months ago, that Sweden and Finland would be talking about joining NATO, I I would have laughed at you. Like the the Finnish have been very good at killing Russians for a thousand years and they never saw a need to do it. So you have Finland and Sweden giving up their... uh, uh, their their stance and looking to join NATO. You you have Belgium, Germany, Switzerland giving up a, a large uh, percentage, or you know just in terms of their neutrality, if you will, when you look at how they've increased their standing points, and you're you're seeing this this unification of the West that I think Putin miscalculated in terms of what these act uh, at what what this would do and how this would galvanize a significant amount of support. But then if you if you are a student of of the USSR and, and the Eastern Bloc, you also know that none of these individuals will will ever fall under the Iron Curtain again, like they would rather die than fall under the Iron Curtain for a second time. And that goes for Poland, that goes for Estonia, Lithuania. This is this is just a broad stroke in terms of they will fight tooth and nail and, and that's what you're starting to see the positioning on. Now, when you look at, as you said, G and, and China, you know, there's, there, it goes two sides to this. So there's one where G you know, could come out and say, well, if you, if you do anything, we'll use nukes because we have them too. So we're just going to go into Taiwan. You know, there's a certain point where you have to say, that's not enough, where you still have to say, you can't just walk into place and say, I have nukes, can't touch me. So, so you have to walk that line of well, where do we defend now? When you also look at China, you know the last thing Xi, uh, Xi, uh, Xi wanted w- is a unified West. You know it, it, the thing that he pri- that he could have really taken advantage was this disconnect between the U.S., European nations, and now you've seen a much stronger unified front, which is probably the last thing that Xi really wanted to see. But with that being said. His vote isn't until November. It's unlikely he would have done anything going into Taiwan ahead of that and not to say that he's going into Taiwan at at this point anyway. But again, all of these things are working against whatever their long-term strategy may be. And I think that's Putin as well. I I think he miscalculated at how divided the West really was.
0: Well, so here's my my thesis and I still hold it this for now um, is that the map will be redrawn the next 100 years from the ground up you know so won't have you won't have the treaty of Versailles type top-down redrawing you'll have um people moving around and you know and, and you'll have um pushback on regimes and stuff like that um when you talk about the the west being unified i have been kind of curious about that because they are unified for putin but up until that point there was mass demonstrations all across Europe about mass mandates and COVID policies Mm -hmm. and trade policies and all this other stuff. Is this, is the West really galvanized or is this just a temporary kind of rally the troops moment? Because I'm not convinced that a year from now, six months now, people are going to go back and say, yeah, you know what, all the stuff we're mad about uh, we're good with it now because Russia.
1: Well, I, I think, you know, as, as the saying goes, an enemy of my enemy is my friend. So as long as you have a unified front, you're, you're going to be able to get things through and, and create a certain amount of dialogue between the two, because it's like, Hey, that was ridiculous. Like those are, those are smaller things versus what we're facing right now, which is an existential threat, especially when you're considering uh, the potential of nuclear fallout where I, I, you, you start to see a certain amount of unity and willingness to uh, to negotiate, where you were just kind of going to dig in and, and focus on you know your side of the aisle. And now it's a bit more of let's reach across and find a way to work together. Now, not to say that there isn't going to be something else. And I know, every, you know there's some comments of like pro, reprogramming or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, in terms of shifting from COVID to something else, but as I wrote in, in March of 29, uh, in, in 2021, and you were kind enough to publish it was, you know, what comes after COVID and, and, and my view was what comes after COVID because we know that there, the economy, the global economy was weak going into COVID. We know that there was a massive amount of printing on the, uh, on the fiscal level, on the monetary level. So now what, where do we go from here? And I think when you look at what we were saying is that post pandemics, you typically have a large increase in geopolitical uncertainty. You have a big increase in geopolitical conflict, and uh, and it really comes under the guise of you know would Russia have gone into a country if the economy was booming and everything was going great, or are you going in for another reason? And that's why when you look at the recession, you know the, the depression. People were hungry. People were poor. People were disenfranchised. There were problems. There was strife. There was anger, and and that gets directed. Now, there's two pieces of that. It gets directed because people are angry, and and you look to focus that anger on someone else. So when you look at at Hitler, it was the uh, the Jewish population. It was the uh, what the, what other European nations did to them in the in the settling of the of the, the World War One. Now you look at, at Russia, it's like, well, you know, this isn't my fault, look at what NATO has done. This is NATO's fault, this is the West's fault. And there's that redirection in terms of giving someone to be angry at. And, and there's there's that mixture of that is a certain amount of that programming that people talk about, but there's also a lot of that anger and hostility because people are not in a good place. You know, people are, are looking for a scapegoat and they're looking to change their ways. And as you said, redrawing the map, you know, and, and you start looking at food. And as we've been talking since 2019, there is a global food crisis. You know, if, if everybody's fat, happy, uh, you know, being fed, you know, uh, ability to, to, to move up the, uh, the ladder, are you willing to risk that? Probably not. But if you can't feed your family and I tell you just across the border, if you kill that guy, your family will eat. There's a good chance you're going to go across that border and kill that guy. And and it just comes down to you know, the, the famous quote of, you know, I don't, I don't go to war because I hate the man in front of me, but because I love those behind me. And that's when you start looking at the Russian Ukraine situation. You know, Russia's looking there and saying, like the Russian soldiers there, it's like, what am I to gain here? Like, I, I you know, I, I what am I what am I gaining taking this ground? You know, am I gonna is my family gonna be in a better spot? Am I gonna, you know, right now I'm seeing all these sanctions, so I'm in a worse spot than than I was. My family's in a worse spot. What are we actually doing? And I think that's where there's there's you don't have that anger. Now, if NATO were to enter, could you redirect that? Because there is a certain amount of animosity of Russians against the u s, against NATO. So there you could redirect that. So that's when it becomes a very complicated conversation of, do we have a no-fly zone? Do we, do we aggressively get involved in terms of outside of just giving uh, equipment, but actually entering a kinetic war? And that's, I think, a very a much bigger question in terms of where this could go.
0: Okay, uh, let's, let's go to China now. Um, talk about it for a second, not from a military standpoint, but economic standpoint. Um, you, you touched on a lot of economic stuff, uh, food shortages. Um, what is this current status in China?
1: So China is concerned and and with good reason, because they've been trying to walk both lines. You know, they they made a lot of agreements with, with uh, Russia. You know, they would buy things, they would do this, they would transact in ruble, because I, I think there was, you know, Putin went into this knowing a lot of the current sanctions were going to happen. Not sure he expected Monaco and Switzerland to go the route they did, but, you know, here we are. So, but I think SWIFT was was very much going to, to be the case, and 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 China has the ability to transact outside of SWIFT between Russia and and um, and uh, and China. And when you look at where they are, you know, they've they've said that they are going to buy Russian wheat, which was uh, initially they weren't going to. But when you look at the amount of product that comes out of both Ukraine and Russia. I mean, Ukraine alone is 13% of the world's wheat, and then that doesn't include uh, China, uh, you know, what, what Russia puts out. So when you start looking at what is happening for China, they're looking at a broad shortfall. You know, this, is, this is an issue because they've been trying to keep inflation on, uh, under wraps, and that's cost the, com- uh, the government money. You know, how much more money will they have to put out to keep gasoline prices flat, to keep diesel prices flat, to keep food prices flat? So they start seeing a bigger problem because, you know, he wants to show growth in the year he gets named president for life. But so he, he needs to show some support. He'll take in some extra from, from, uh, from Russia, but at the same time, he still needs the West and he still needs the West in a big way. I mean, we are their largest buyer that, that, that hasn't changed overnight. So he really can't do too much because he needs to make sure the West keeps buying product You know, when you look at what is actually being sold in the world and what the Chinese economy has achieved, it's only been through trade and it's because we're buying stuff. And then you look at how much they rely on Germany and how much they rely on Europe for trade, especially high quality imports. That becomes a a concern. So right now, I think they've done a, a fairly good job of walking the line, but you're starting to see them pivot a little bit harder towards the, um, the, the. US side. Now, with that being said, they also enjoy a discount. And when you look at where Urals are trading, when you look at where other Ur- uh, uh, Russian barrels are trading, they could come in and buy some of these at a discount. Now, they the biggest issue is insurance and shipping costs. Now the central the PBOC could easily back that. That's not an issue. They could issue letters of credit. They could easily insulate that. But it's unlikely that they would be able to obviously touch a US bank or European bank. So it would have to be something that would transact between them, which is fine. And China would be more than happy to do on a yuan basis. But uh, again, it, they still haven't been doing that. And, and I think that's going to be the one to watch because I do think they'll start picking up some ESPO and euro cargoes uh, at, a, at a fairly steep discount.
0: Yeah, the wheat thing is interesting because you know you've obviously covered the the food stuff for since you're like three or four years old, I believe. You've covered it. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like I've been talking about it for that long. <laughs> oh, it's um, you know, and so I'm I mean, going to see if I can pull up the wheat prices right now. Um, but I I put out a chart this the other day, just looking at it, and you know it was one of those, you know, we're going to be off the chart here before too long is how high it's gone and it's crazy and so what does that mean for us sitting here in the in in the u.s should you know when you you start looking at the russia ukraine china u.s what you saw during covid was china would get mad at the u.s but they still did business with us they got mad at the australians they cut the australians off Are, are we seeing a shift to where Maybe the Russians, the Chinese won't come back to the US because of some of the SWIFT sanctions and some of that stuff. Or are we still okay and, and, and because we're America, we, we shouldn't have to worry. Um, we're still at number one on the
1: pecking order. Well, when you look at when you look at Australia, they cut off some things, but but not others. And yeah, not, when you look at ar- or, right. yeah. yeah, so when you look at like LNG, they were still buying LNG, there was still a certain amount of things that were transacting. So I think even if Russia were to still sell oil to China, we would still do business with China. I think that would be what we would deem to be acceptable in terms of some of the value that they would be getting. Uh, Same with natural gas. There's a lot of pipe natural gas coming through. The question would be if China starts selling military equipment, if you start and and not to say that they might not be doing that in backroom deals, but if it became a much bigger situation where they were they were giving a certain amount of product, because one of the things that a lot of people may not know, Ukraine actually produces uh, or produced a significant amount of high quality products. Uh, f- for the military, for Russia. I mean, it, when you look at like the, the, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, to go back to that, every single one of those nukes was actually built and assembled in the Ukraine. You know, when you look at prior to 2014, almost 80% of the missiles and, and uh, I should say high quality missiles were actually built and assembled in the Ukraine in the Russian military. So when you start looking at where they are, they're going to start running out of equipment. And, and the question will be, who do they turn to? And the only answer is really, they can turn to China. Now, how China reacts, I think they're going to want to stay more neutral in that, because that is something that would increase the sanctions against them if they were to start giving openly this military support, because they do still need the West. And if you start looking at you know, the the shortfalls because Ukraine is shut down, like, unfortunately, there's none of that cargoes that are coming out, Russia is not going to be able to go in, pick them up and start exporting them under their banner. So China also needs food. And who is the one of the largest exporters of product outside of, you know, Eastern Europe, you start looking at Latin America, you start looking at America. So if they start having to buy more food, well, well, is that going to weigh higher than trying to make some money selling some, uh, some drones and, uh, and, and highly intelligent missiles to the Russian military? So I, I think you're, you're, you're going to see them, which is what they've shifted a bit in terms of those letters of credit, the way they're structuring. Now, letters of credit were banned on a U.S. dollar basis, but not banned on a yuan basis. And I think that'll stay the same. And that's how they'll transact. But they'll show solidarity with the ban on SWIFT. They'll show some solidarity in terms of where some of these uh, this, this money is going to go, but they also need to make sure that they can feed their people, and that's going to keep them, uh, I don't want to say beholden, but reliant on where the, uh, the U.S. is, where Europe is, and how they uh, they manage their relationship with Russia.
0: Okay, um, let's talk here briefly about oil prices at the time of this recording. WTI sitting at one hundred four and Brent sitting at one hundred five. Natty sitting at four fifty five. Those are for those who aren't live, which is no one. Uh, Those are actually fifteen minute delayed prices because I don't have a Bloomberg (laughs) terminal. So (laughs) I I was I was going to say
1: we've actually spiked. We're over we're over one hundred five on the WTI side.
0: Yeah, I'm actually more saying that because I can see Margaret looking at the safe like that's not right. (laughs) So that was more than I do. (laughs) <laughs> I don't have the, it's, high close. Price. it's close. It's close. <laughs> it's close, but I don't have the true lab price. Okay. So at the 15 minutes ago, when we recorded this, that was the price. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Mark um, let's just unpack this for half a second. So if you're in the oil and gas business, you are quite well aware of these high prices and then followed by a devastating crash that basically ruins your business. If not yours, your friend's as we sit here today, it's hard to see that path. Okay. I don't see the path to get there, but we, we, it seems like every time we hit, we get here within a year or two, we're back to, you know, sub $40 prices is, are we, what's the path to get there? Let's start that. What, what does it look like to get to where we're like, Oh my gosh, we're back below 40 again.
1: Uh, it's going to take uh, several things. So, one, it'll take a normalizing of relationships with Russia. You know, if you just look at what they export, you're talking about over 10 million barrels. Uh, what produced over 10 million barrels. I mean, 4 million barrels a day goes into the open water, which is export that's not including what's go- what goes on pipe. You know, you're looking at about six to seven million barrels a day that are exported, not including product. So, when you look at just the shortfalls, you're talking about a broad loss of volume. So it would take a normalizing of, uh, of, of uh, sanctions and, and just where that crude can be sold. But at the same time, it, it's also the, the consumer. And, and the problem is the consumer wasn't in a good spot beforehand and and wasn't in a good spot previously and you start looking at what the fed is now facing and what other central banks are facing it's inflation and inflation was out of was 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 starting to spiral before russia before all of this so now when you start looking at you know gasoline prices and and more importantly cuz i know gasoline prices you see it you know you're physically paying for it so it, it, you can feel that internally but the bigger issue is diesel because diesel prices is something that touch touches every single thing you buy, every single thing you see and that's going to have a bigger lasting effect and that's where you start to see those those pennies and those dimes start to add up because every single time that that transaction happens of anything from a tube of toothpaste down to you know, the bread that you get from the store, there's there's that gets added in and you start to see those increases. And that's when you start to get this biting inflation. And that is why you see this, this, you know, every like you said, every time we come up here, we see this crash. It's because supply will start to normalize, and people essentially say, Nope, can't afford it, and everything shifts lower. And that's when you start to get that supply ramp as that supply as that demand drops off. Now as you know like we've been saying that the consumer was getting into a tougher and tougher spot because even though wages were rising they weren't rising fast enough to counter the increased inflation and you've actually seen a negative uh, a, you know negative real wage increase now you factor in where we sit today with where prices are where prices are likely going in the near term like uh, I don't know if you saw the announcement we're going to have a 60 million barrel uh, release from strategic mm-hmm. petroleum reserves but 60 million, I, I mean, you're talking about Russia that produces 10 million a day. You know, you're talking about a country that exports 6 million a day. So 60 million, so you covered us for 10 days and what is the quality of it? Wait, you know, is it something r- uh, refiners even want? So this inflation starts to bite and you start to see a much bigger degradation in terms of where things are from the consumer side. Prices were already high. You know, as we were saying, when you look at travel, you know people the the same deals aren't there people are already fighting against inflationary pressures that were previously there from well, wages from you know uh from just trying to re- recoup their input costs from supply chain issues now look at supply chains i mean it's not just oil that comes from from russia it's not just food it's aluminum it's rare earths it's palladium and that's going to again that's going to get factored into price that's going to get factored into cost and and that's why you see that drop is because you get a huge demand drop off in terms of what people can afford
0: you're always rosy and optimistic
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, ca- I just call it being a realist i just i'm just a realist let's put it that way but but then the, the interesting thing you know, uh, when you look at this when the the U.S. Matt, again, and not to plug myself, but we do a, a primary vision frac spread count. We do it every Friday, and one of the things that we've been talking about is there's been a supply chain issue also in the Permian when you when you look at propin. But now let's look past propin. Let's look at casings. Let's look at steel, and and that's going to become a bigger issue because yes, prices at these prices, you'd be crazy not to drill. But do you have the labor to do it? Do you have the equipment to do it? And, and I think that is going to become a bigger hindrance to a supply response is, you know, am I prepared to, and do I have the capacity to meet and, and capture these higher prices? And for some, the answer will be yes. They, they plan for it. They, they have um, inventory. And for others, it's going to be no. Yeah. What about Venezuela? Like I, I keep
0: thinking, I know Venezuela's in shambles. I just I just keep thinking if I'm China, I call up Venezuela right now and I'm like, hey guys, let's 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 get this thing done <laughs> because right. China's talking about being crushed, they're gonna be crushed by these high prices. I, I would be in Venezuela. Uh, I might go down to Nigeria and say, hey, we've got to quit jumping all this oil into the rivers. We've got to get mm. pipe. We've got to pipe it out. We go to Mexico and say, hey, all these illegal, hotline, uh, all these illegal hot taps have to stop.
1: <laughs> when we see it get that crazy where people are like, you know, we can't do this anymore? Well, so when you look at when you look at China, China doesn't have the know how and given they, they have their state owned oil companies they, sure. they've 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 gotten a lot of IP and, and understanding. But when you look at who is the best at doing this, it's still the U.S. and to and to a large de- per, uh, degree, uh, Russia, mm-hmm. when it comes to finding producing you know uh, oil. So, yes, like, they, you know, China could come in and say, uh, Venezuela, where do we sit on this? But okay. do they have the know how to go in and fix it? Now, could the U.S. go in and say, OK, Chevron, we're going to say because I'm uh, just using them yeah, because sure. they're already there. Right. You know, Chevron, go at it. Now, if if you release Chevron to do it, the response will be quick but now you have uh, you have venezuela I, I i i i don't know quadrupling down i mean what what is it when you're over 100 at this point <laughs> when you look at his his solidarity right. with putin mm-hmm. so that takes it out that that starts to limit you know the when you look at mexico mexico's been in terminal decline and that would take a, an extended period of time to not only just arrest but to grow you know the low hanging fruit is iran and when you look at Urals versus light uh, Iranian crude, they're essentially replacements for each other. You can you it, so say for an example, let's just use the, uh, Valero for an example. Mm. If, if Valero bought a, a Urals cargo, you know they factor that into their model in terms of what's going into their refiner. If you make an Iranian light uh, light available. They could swap. You don't have to change anything. It's pretty much a straight swap. So, Iran becomes an interesting one. And not to say that they could turn production around tomorrow, but they do have crude that is in storage that would be uh, pulled out. And if you allowed people to buy it quickly, it could be pulled out and it could be pulled out rapidly, especially if you make that easier. So that is where then it comes to, well, where's the Iranian deal? Is this something where Iran looks at this and says, well, this is a big bargaining chip? Now, China could go to them and say, look, I don't care about the the sanctions. I'm going to take advantage of this, and I'm going to buy massively discounted Russian crude And I'm going to buy very discounted Iranian crude. And I don't care what you have to say, because I'm going to do that. But I'm not going to sell the the Russians any military equipment. So you really can't get too mad at me. And I'm going to I'm going to uh, go about that. So it's going to come to where does Libya sit? You know, we're already starting to see a big increase in barrels coming out of West Africa. Uh, Nigeria crude will go in greater quantities to Europe. Uh, Angola is starting to pick up as well. Some of that will show up in both India, China, and and again into uh, into Europe. But the the dated Brent price is going up, so that also incentivizes more pull from uh, things that go off of Oman, Dubai, which is the Middle East. We are, we we saw the UAE have a, a big increase in exports, uh, especially as they uh, to close out the uh, the month of February, and we'll see more coming from the Middle East. In the near term, just given where the pull is going to come from to 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 replace these lost uh, Russian barrels,
0: yeah, and I think that's where it gets interesting: is does the Chinese or do the Chinese leverage some of their connections to put the squeeze on the countries that 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 are looking for it now? And then you have the Biden mm-hmm. administration: will they renegotiate some of these contracts? You kind of have both sides of that coin. You're trying to trying to figure out how that happens. Um, China, I think, wants people to go to the digital, the digital yuan, where they use this as a chance to leverage to get people on that. I mean, there's a there's a lot here that's just just it's, it's really hard to figure out um, what's going to happen. I'm sure we we right. can you know pontificate for for hours, but it's you start thinking about all these things like, well, okay, you know, you could see it going this way, you could see it going that way, and um, I don't know. I'm curious, about know, the time we talk next month, I'm sure all kinds of things will have changed. But I do think that we are you know you, t- you think about the US just for a second here um it doesn't feel like there's anything immediately changing um on the US production side i, I just talk, I had a call this morning with a guy and he's in the he's in the, the sector and he he's doing really well but he goes all my buddies are you know they're they're struggling you know they right. they need 18 months of just cash flow to, to be able to hire the people that these people are saying they, they need they they just can't they don't have, they, they were decimated for so long, they don't have the cash to get going again. And so uh, it's a long, it's, we have a, a long road to recovery.
1: Right. And, and that, that becomes the issue. And then China can also use this as, as a means of saying, Hey, look what they did with Swift. But we also had this other thing called, I, I think it's, you know, CIPS. So cross-border interbank payment system. So they can say, Hey, yes, yeah, Swift is great, but you can also use this and this is an alternative. And, and, now again, there's only so much that will be done because dollars are still used for um, for insurance, and and insurance and and freight rates becomes an issue, and a lot of that is done in dollars, and and that's where you're starting to see uh, com- countries and company uh, companies not going FOB, which is free on board. But CIF, which just means that, you know, <laughs> this is going to be something where they're like, hey, I'm not buying FOB because I I don't want to take this risk, and there's a huge increase in cost. So it, it China could definitely use that to to their advantage. But to your point on where the U.S. is, you know, when you look at 2020 and you saw this huge collapse, a lot of uh, horsepower went to the sidelines, and in order to save costs, instead of going out and buying a new fluid and a new transmission. You went to the yard and you stripped out these pieces. So you may look in the yard and say, "Well, there, it looks like there's four spreads right there." It's like, "Yeah, but how complete are those spreads? Can that horsepower come back right now?" And the short answer is no. You know, the longer answer is it. The parts have been ordered, but where are they in the supply chain, and how quickly will they be deployed? Because you you also have to maintain your currently your current operating equipment. So that's when you're starting to see some of this disconnect, which is to your point, like you're not going to get this instantaneous spike. So it's a mixture of China can use this as an angle to use SIPs a bit more. And then you have you know, the US really unable, not that they don't want to, but unable to meet the, uh, the increasing demand uh, just based on the limitation of not only wages, but also equipment.
0: Okay. Interesting times
1: for sure. Mark, you put a ton of content. Where can people find your work at? Sure. So you can find me on Twitter at Mark FNY. Uh, you can email me at mrasano at c6capitalholdings.com, or you can find me on Primary Vision Network, which is our YouTube channel.
0: Awesome. Okay, buddy. Thank you once again, and look forward to chatting about whatever's going on in the world next month. It'll be it'll be some of this.
1: How much of yeah, this I'm sure. change is the question. <laughs> yes, absolutely.